Welcome to Start, Scale and Disrupt. My name is Christopher Goodfellow and I'm your host today, uh, Managing Editor of Business Zone, which aims to give the founders of growth stage businesses the expertise they need to scale. I'll be joined in a moment by Taryn Gore, who's the founder of Cafoodle. Uh, Cafoodle is a food tech business which allows consumers and kitchens to track ingredients and avoid any issues with allergies, at the same time meeting the, the EU requirements around that. And that was a really fantastic ethical business. Uh, they bootstrapped to start with. Uh, they won the pitch last year. They've now grown to a team of 12 and are really in that kind of scale-up phase where they're thinking of bringing on C-level um, staff, perhaps getting an investment. And, and we talk a lot about kind of how you, you scale a team like that, the initial stages of the business as well, um, and... and and the kind of challenges that you face trying to being on a really ethical mission and making sure that the, the staff that you bring on and the way that you work really embodies the, the values of the founders. So thanks for listening today. If you have any comments, as always, pop me an email. Uh, it's chris.goodfellow at sifmedia.co.uk or you can tweet us at Business Zone. Thank you. Hi, Taryn. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. No problem. I thought it'd be great if we could just start by uh, talking a bit about sort of where Cafoodle came from and, and why you started the business, because I understand it's kind of quite an intense, uh, interesting story in terms of the inspiration. Yes, uh, absolutely. So Cafoodle was originally founded back in 2014, and it was founded by myself uh, and my co-founder, Kim Antonio. So uh, Kim's got a very personal reason for initially speaking to me about Cafoodle and it involved her husband having an anaphylactic shock due to his sesame allergy in a restaurant where they'd miscommunicated the information. Um, so Kim has a very technical background and obviously at that stage was very linked into apps and applications and how they can be used to communicate better with diners. And obviously I was working in the hospitality space more in kitchens and the marketing and um, funding side of restaurants. So her and I literally met up for a chat and by the end of the conversation I thought, hang on, actually we can connect the entire ecosystem around food from kind of farm to fork, digitizing it. So it's not just about an app or just about a B2B software, but it's actually about creating that transparency around everything that happens in the food chain. And that was the inspiration behind the two of us joining forces and founding Cafoodle. Um, great. So how, how did you two meet? I mean, you, you've obviously got very different backgrounds and sort of complementary skill sets, but where was that initial uh, introduction? Uh, so Kim and I originally met about, ooh, must be six years ago. Well, maybe now seven because we've been working together for three, um, where ironically she tried to sell me an app when I was running a restaurant group in London. Um, and she came in and, and told me how the future of restaurants were in apps. Um, and I said I didn't believe her. Uh, but we became, but I kind of, I liked the way that she did business and how ethical she was and how she spent a lot of time trying to educate me around the technology and the influences it could have on hospitality. And we kind of, we stayed in contact ever since that meeting, even though we, I didn't actually buy an app from her in the initial meeting. But uh, that's pretty much how we met. Okay. And what about funding early on? I mean, I understand you bootstrapped the business. I mean, how, how was that possible? And then kind of what did you do to get the kind of first uh, beta versions of the product ready? So there are three of us that founded it. Um, the, the third founder is actually the chairman, um, who has a very, had a very successful advertising company and also has a, a wife who has diabetes. 
So he was really interested in getting involved. And then it was Kim and myself. So Bill originally put in um, some money as a founder. And then the rest of us put in our, some of our own money and time um, to pay for the development. So it was originally, it just started with the three of us and then one developer. And we were doing all the, the scoping and the feasibility studies and the prototyping of the product. Um, we did that for kind of most of 2014 and 2015 before we hired our team towards the end of 2015 once we had the prototype ready. Okay, and I uh, said so you have been approached in, in terms of sort of acquisition and or not acquisition, sorry, investment as, over that period as well. Is that right? Yes. So I think um, Blue Tech back in 2014 and 2015 was an incredibly new and interesting and sexy side of technology. Um, and there was quite a lot of money being thrown around anyone that was looking at health and well-being and nutrition because it was a rising trend. Um, and we definitely kind of toyed with the idea of doing the funding, but we weren't, to be honest with you, we weren't 100% sure what our roadmap and our business model looked like. Um, and there was that element where we wanted to do what we felt was ethical and, and right for us. And we didn't necessarily feel that we would be able to go down that route without finding completely the right investors, which we, um, there were some very, very good people we spoke to, but we just kind of thought that we needed to get much clearer in our mind where the company was going before we had an external influence. Right. And of those values, is that something you've kind of formally enshrined or is it just kind of a sense that you have, um, you know, in your, in your relationships in the founding team? Um, I think our founding team, so our mission, vision and values were the first thing we did. It's, we spent the most amount of money, if I'm honest with you, on doing our branding and making sure that we were all clear what the mission as a company was and what our vision looks like over the next five years. Um, but it took us, I wouldn't have said we've pivoted on that, but it's take mission, vision and values I've always thought are, are great, a little bit fluffy, but great. Um, but actually transcribing those into how they affect everyone you hire and how, what that means to create ethical technology, um, that kind of took us a bit of time of tweaking, if I'm honest with you. Um, and I think it's also just staying true to yourself. So to give you an idea, originally when we first kind of launched our compliance software for food, the biggest traction we had was China. Um, so every investor that spoke to us was all kind of, oh, you know, you can solve the China problem and there's a lot of money around, which was great. But we were very clear on the fact that, you know, we it was we weren't willing or ready to kind of jump across to China before knowing that it worked in the UK and doing the good that we wanted to do at home. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And are there any other ways, apart from kind of the business direction where you, you can, or tips that you can share on, on how to make sure that those values go sort of beyond just being codified? I mean, you mentioned hiring there. Is there, are there any suggestions around that perhaps you can give in terms of um, embedding those values in a business? Yeah, so I think, I think we made mistakes, as everyone does. And I just think that when it comes to the startup and how passionate you are and your values are, that it's definitely not a case of, you know, people, we've got, we've got people who literally took 50% pay cuts just because they believe in what we're doing. Um, and yes, probably do believe that in the long run, they'll probably get raises, which I hope they do. Um, but I think it's very much we hired kind of for the passion. Um, obviously, our developers are all experienced developers, but even with that, they have to 
our developers also have to understand what we're building and believe in what we're building. And I think um, we have a fantastic HR gentleman who joined us really early on and is one of the people who probably took the biggest pay cuts to join us. And he's very big on mission and vision. And what he's really good at is in every appraisal and every interview, he immediately drills down to exactly how the mission and vision of the company affects you and your job role and what that means to you specifically and how your job makes the company stronger at doing our bigger food transparency mission, if that makes sense, which to be honest with you, I never experienced in my corporate life where you know all the companies have these big statements, but they never kind of drill it down to the micro detail of how your job affects that mission statement, which he's really good at doing. Right, so it's about repeating all of those touch points and really taking it back to every appraisal, every one-to-one, bringing it back to that mission. Exactly. And keep it because it keeps everyone on track, especially when there's a bad day or a good day or, you know, especially as a startup. It's not that you chase the money, but certain clients want different things. And quite often, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding unprofessional, but, it's, you know, quite often your team can feel like you're, you're either being a scattergun or you're disorganized, where actually it's just a different way of going after the same mission. And if they're clear on what the mission is, it can feel a lot more structured for them because quite often, you know, a lot of the people you hire um, haven't worked in startups before. So they come from kind of corporates where you do the same thing nine to five, Monday to Friday, and a startup isn't like that at all. And I think to make sure that everyone still feels like they're behaving within a certain structured environment, that mission is what kind of keeps you all in that glass box where you can jump out of it and it can change and the size can mold. But you all know what you're striving towards. And I think that's quite important because quite often we will have to pivot or rearrange the roadmap based on a client demand, which can feel disorganized, but not if we're still striving towards the same goal. That makes a lot of sense. So and when you so the, the product was kind of in gestation for a while while you kind of scoped out the values and, and did the development work. I mean, when you did launch, I mean, maybe if you could just kind of tell us what the initial product was and, and kind of the customer segment that that was aimed at. So initially, our product launched um, as a SaaS business license, so um, basically just £40 a month, and any food business in Europe could go online, buy the product, and start using it. And our product segment was independent restaurants that needed to make sure that they were compliant and were not going to be fined or actually um, serve jail time. Uh, And that was our, our main product segment that we targeted. Um, unfortunately, it was actually a lot harder than we thought in the way that um, you're, you're dealing with kind of the demographic that really aren't digitally inclined. Um, so that's where we proactively started to look at the Food Standards Agency and how they can support us in helping get smaller business. I mean, our, ethically, we, we were always developed to be a cost-effective solution for smaller businesses to be able to stay compliant with EU legislations that have changed, you know, they've changed in 2014 and changed in 2016, which is, can be a big headache for a smaller business. Um, but we also quite quickly realized that to break even and to be financially viable, we had to go after enterprise clients. Right. And, and, and so when, when that realization happened, I mean, what were the next steps? Is that kind of just sort of changing the, the marketing? I mean, how involved was that to kind of target those, those larger businesses? Um, we're lucky in the fact that even in the hospitality segment, um, there's not, there's not a lot 
of larger businesses that are completely joined up, if that makes sense. So uh, it wasn't a massive, it was more about just starting conversations with people that we initially thought wouldn't need our product. And then discovering that there were actually quite a lot of bigger businesses that were still using Excel spreadsheets or weren't using whatever software was in-house correctly or it wasn't user-friendly so that there was there was a decent enough market out there that also needed our product that were much bigger businesses than we originally anticipated. I think in our feasibility study, we kind of very much targeted on this, the smaller businesses that we knew were in Excel spreadsheets, but there were actually businesses that had quite large turnovers that were also kind of running of non-digital solutions that we started to target. Okay, and is that kind of where the Cafoodle Cares um, element of the business came out as well? I mean, is that the kind of natural evolution? or? Yes, so contract caterers are in general um, our enterprise clients for kitchen, and a lot of the bigger contract caterers have a lot of clients in the social care sector, so hospitals, care homes, frailty care. So it was a natural kind of evolution to um, to scale up the product, uh, but also kind of the, the computer care came from the personal experience of in hospital, kind of seeing that they were doing a manual process for something that could be quite easily digitized. Um, so we always kind of thought as Cafoodle Care as not being a a different product. It was more of an extension of our core product to make it better of better use in the social care sector, which is the product we have today, which, well, today I say it launches next month, um, which is much more inclined towards the social care sector. Okay, and are they the two main products at the moment, or are there any other kind of elements that, w that we haven't covered? So it's difficult. Basically, what we've realized, and with technology, as I'm sure most people know, is the modular development of it. So our technology is the complete farm to fork. So there's the element of farmers being able to use elements of it to manufacturers, to restaurants, and to consumers. But there's also the whole argument that um, people might have a solution in place for part of that journey. So we are, our software can be used in its entirety, or you can literally use 10% of it. So for instance, if, if someone has a solution that they really, really like, it might just be a B2B solution, and it doesn't have the communication to be able to tell diners or to export to their company website or to an app like Deliveroo, then that's where our kind of API and our communications portal comes in, which is part of the core product, but is also only 10% of the whole product, if that makes sense. So we've kind of sliced and diced it. I think we've, we've rearranging our website now to kind of advertise the seven different strong elements we have. But once again, it's, it's all the same technology and it's all part of the core product. It's just people might use different elements of the product. Okay. And, and what about the, the company structure itself? I mean, how, how many staff do you have now? And then, you know, what, what's the turnover? So um, we have 12 staff. Some are part-time, obviously, and some one is a consultant as well. Um, our turnover at the moment, we're, we're still government-funded, so we're not allowed to commercialize um, completely on 50% of our product. We're only allowed to commercialize on the other 50%. So I think I'd rather I'll disclose the turnover by the end of the year once we've got through kind of a full financial year of being allowed to commercialize 50% of the product, if that makes sense. Um, but, 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 but we're at, we're at break-even, which is more than we ever could have hoped for. Um, and as I've said previously, our, our big thing now is kind of how do you, you know, is break even our goal or do we want to get funding so we can scale up quicker? Okay. 
And in the government support side of it, that was the, the grant for uh, Cathedral Cares, is that right? Yes, it is. Okay, and how did you find that, that application process? Have you got any advice there and, uh, on going through something like that? Grants can be quite detailed. I wouldn't say they're as detailed as doing a funding round, but I think my final submission was 36 pages uh, with a full business plan, financials, and you are guessing because obviously you haven't completely validated everything. That's what the grant is for. It's an R&D. We got an R&D grant, um, which is why we can't commercialize. But there are people who consider who are considered experts in grant writing and who do it on a regular basis. So they know the type of language, which I find is quite useful. And also, if you need to free up the time, um, all I would say is definitely do your due diligence on both the grant writer and the grant you're applying for. And just make sure that it's applicable for your company, but is something that was on your roadmap anyway. So for us, Cathedral Care, due to my personal experience, that was always something I wanted to do. And then when a correct grant came up in the health tech space, we applied for it. Perfect. And it, when we're talking about the, the number of employees, we understand uh, when we're chatting before the call that you're kind of thinking about or bringing on C-level uh, staff now. I just kind of wondered if you could talk a bit about that and what that meant for you as a founder and how you're, how you're looking for those people. Yeah, so we, we, we always um, kind of, even from the beginning, thought that we would want a CEO or just someone who was, you know, who'd run a B2B e-commerce tech company before or done this all before and um, have, have not managed to successfully find anyone that we feel fits in, but also have kind of came on to the realization that maybe for the first two years, obviously the founders are the best people to run the business. Now, that's kind of come up on the three-year stint, and as we head into the health tech space, we've become a bit more aware of getting an expert in that field, um, and actually, we've engaged someone who kind of specializes in SME recruitment for, I mean, I don't know if we would get a CEO, we're probably more looking at an MD who can come in and operate, but someone who's actually got the black book and knows how the sector works, because we don't, and just because we had the idea doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be the best person to sell it into that space. Um, so at the moment, we're very much re-looking at, so for Cathedral Care is what I'm talking about specifically, it's very much a health tech product. We've got the R&D credit um, and grant into December of this year. And when we start commercializing into January, uh, I'm kind of looking at someone who can head up that product arm who's got experience in selling into hospitals and care homes, who understands the way the NHS works better um, and kind of knows exactly what they should and shouldn't be doing. But also we're currently doing a consultative process of what we think the business will need and exactly everything that person needs to do. Because I think especially in a startup, you know, you can give someone a title, but you've got to be very clear of that title will probably not directly relate to every section of their job. You know, everyone's going to muck in and get their hands dirty on different elements. And our, our main goal for the first six months of next year will be to obviously commercialize a product that we spent two years building. So whoever comes in will have to be involved in many different elements of the company. Okay. And are there any other key hires to support that? I mean, you're looking at kind of marketing directors or anything like that? Yeah, I think I think we've we've kind of done it. It kind of depends on whether we get funding or not. If I'm honest with you, um, there's the element of if we got funding, we would immediately hire digital marketing managers, a marketing director, more sales managers, 
that whole element. But if we don't get funding, then we'll have to we'll have to be a very lean startup again. Um, and the only reason why we're thinking that might not work is just because once again, the healthcare space is is very different to hospitality. You know, bootstrapping a hospitality company was easy. I mean, hospitality is quite friendly. All the events were quite cheap. But health tech is, you know, the exhibitions, everything involved around healthcare comes at a with a price tag. So it becomes a little bit more, more important for us to look at our cash flow and exactly how we can fund the company for the next 12 months. Yeah, okay. And then you're at the uh, Accelerator of Manchester today, is that right? I am indeed. And it, how's that going? I mean, it's a, you know, so you work for us with the, the pitch. I mean, what, what's the kind of difference and how are you, um, how is that helping support the business? Um, so firstly, the pitches has usually helped me with the amount of pitches you have to do during an accelerator, <laughs> um, which is really what it is. I mean, um, so there are a lot of workshops that are very much um, quite far along the lines. So there are actually workshops where you're in front of the NHS for three hours, um, being able to hear how they um, purchase products, what they look for in technology, everything like that, which is kind of a, in those three hours, you kind of you get through kind of what would be three months worth so it's it's a lot more advanced you know you literally are showing the prototype and the product to the NHS with them saying well actually we would need it to do x y z so it's quite quick product validation for us um you're also immediately meeting the key personnel so I think it's it's you know everyone it's not so much an incubator and accelerator everyone's got a viable product that has had the first round of validation and works and it's now maybe just about a bit more bespokeness or how you can actually sell it into the NHS uh, as well as the fact that every week we stand up and pitch in front of 60 people who come from specific businesses looking for all types of solutions. So I think um, the pitch was such a concentrated um, pitching process of firstly, you know, I have my 60 seconds, my 90 seconds and my five minutes. Um, most of the pitches we do are five minutes. Um, and I think it's that kind of the level of confidence that you have in an accelerator in the way that, you know your product works, you you know you're solving a problem. It's just a little bit more about selling it to the people and making sure that they understand how it solves a problem that they might not have recognized yet. Uh, but it's it's definitely useful. And I think it for us, it's put us in front of decision makers of very big companies straight away, whereas sometimes building that relationship could take a ma quite a few months, especially in healthcare. You know, it's fantastic how uh, how targeted the, the, the sort of people they're putting you in front of are. Exactly. Okay, brilliant. And then just finally on the pitch, I mean, is there any advice you'd give to to anybody thinking of entering? I mean, we do we're opening applications this month, so it'd be great to get any tips from you. Well, I I would say absolutely do it. Um, it um, the people I met on the pitch, we we still all stay in contact. Um, the guidance on the first day. Uh, it might seem like you're giving up a, quite a lot of your time when you're no doubt incredibly busy, but I think really going through those workshops that we did on the first day of the pitch and refining the way you speak about your product, the way you present it, um, what matters to different people, what to highlight, all of that is invaluable. And it's it's the confidence. I think, um, I mean, you'll, you'll probably see it on the video if you watch any of the pitch videos. I was an incredibly insecure and nervous public speaker before I did the pitch. And since doing the pitch, I think I've done 17 public speaking engagements um, where I felt quite, I mean, I still get nervous, don't get me wrong, but you feel a lot more comfortable on stage knowing you've been through it. Um, 
and knowing that you were one of the finalists alone was was fantastic having been there um so i think it's 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 definitely vital to, uh, to give you an idea of how important we think it is we we've started our own mini pitch series in the, in our in our team um which might seem silly when we're so small but we've hired a whole lot of summer interns for instance and um the first wednesday of every month we do an hours pitch training where you know we kind of do the whole if you're at a networking event and someone says you know what do you do what is your answer you know how do you how do you present kafudo um as a company and it's become really vital because it's it's that 60 second elevator pitch where you don't want to bore anyone but you want them to get what you do but also make sure that our entire team are speaking about our company in the same way with that same value and that core proposition we have um and i think the if i hadn't done the pitch or or won it the team probably wouldn't take it as seriously when i when i do the training with them yeah uh, that's that's great to hear and uh, thanks so much for joining us today taren thanks very much chris love you speak to you